how do you explain to people who don't understand like what it is that we do? How do, how do you explain to them what, what you do? Do you have a go-to way of explaining it? I do. Uh, when it's someone I don't know, I generally say I help big companies be less annoying. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and yes. they get it. <laughs> We wanted to start a conversation and start a community where we would go on a mission to celebrate and to learn from designers, leaders, researchers, and thinkers who create digital experiences that matter. My name is David Whited. I'm the director of the CX practice at Highland, a digital experience agency in Chicago, Illinois. Here at Highland, we research, design, and build digital products and experiences for customer-centric companies and mission-driven organizations. I'm Mike Nowak product strategist. And I'm Carissa Shelton, lead experience designer. Welcome to Experiences That Matter. Welcome everybody to this episode of Experiences That Matter. We're here with our very special guest, Megan Burns. Many of you probably know Megan. Uh, She's a thought leader in the area of experience design. Megan is the founder and CEO of Experience Enterprises and in her everyday work, primarily works with leaders who manage experiences, all different types of experiences, lots of those types of experiences in the corporate world for employee experience, but also uh, customer experience. And she helps those leaders master the art of experience management. So Megan, uh, thanks so much for being here with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. That's well, great. Megan, I know that you, um, <laughs> when as you're helping big companies become less annoying. Uh, I love that. Um, we're going to, we're definitely going to use that. Um, I know that like a big way that you do that, one of the most important ways that you do that is by helping them turn and pay attention to sort of the human dynamics, um, and the experiences that they manage, uh, the experiences they create. And so that's where I'd like us to focus today, um, is really like how you help companies do that, like turn and pay attention to the people. And of course, that's a big part of the reason why this podcast exists is because we care about human flourishing. We care about the experiences of people and creating experiences clearly, you know, that matter. Um, I'd like to start, um, we've got this hypothesis that like the people that do what we do, right? There's always sort of this nugget in their story, this like early part of their experience as a kid or like as an adolescent that they that they trace what they do back to and I'm curious do you have is there something like in your childhood or early adolescence that you think ah, this is where this whole story started I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Herb Kelleher the founder of Southwest said once uh, I can't teach people customer service their parents do that no uh, interesting. that's a great no. quote yeah yeah uh, mine literally did literally did Um, Both my parents were in frontline retail. My mother still is. My father was until about 15 years ago. So when there was no babysitter, I was literally in the store. Mm. And so I I grew up watching customer service. And my mom's exceptional at it. My dad was exceptional at it. And so whether I realized it or not, sort of how you conduct yourself when you're dealing with other people in a business setting was all around me. And I think that made me really conscious of it as a customer and then as a professional. Yeah. Did you, did you all have explicit conversations about like customer experience or customer service like around the dinner table? Or was it just something that you feel like you absorbed from watching it? I don't remember. I'm sure we probably had both. 
we certainly did have conversations, sort of the stories, the amazing stories you hear from people coming in. Some are stories of wonderful people. My parents met working in a jewelry store. So you can imagine there are a lot of happy occasions around that. Sure. Um, but then also, you know, there are there have been people yelling at uh, retail folks since long before COVID. Um, so yeah. you know, the stressful <laughs> situations as well. There were um, Karens. There were Karens even before there were Karens, oh, I guess, you know. <laughs> Poor, yes. Karen. Poor Karen. Poor Karen. 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 Sorry, it. Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ironically, we talk about it more now. My mom is really my sanity check. Uh, more than once, she has said to me, somebody like you told somebody at corporate that we should do X. So now I have to do this version mm. of this that is really not going to change anything, but I have to do it because corporate said so. Mm. And I won't oh, say wow. which company she works with, mm. but she is very much my sanity check of when we talk about the front lines. And, and my dad, before he um, retired, uh, worked in a call center. Mm-hmm. He was a call center yeah. agent. So they're, they're very much a part of, you know, I would hear what the company was saying at the corporate level, and then I would get that sort of firsthand frontline perspective. And that shapes a lot yeah. of how I work. Keeps you grounded there. Yeah. 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 I don't know if, I don't know if I've ever met anybody who like had customer service or customer experience, like so deep in their blood, uh, you know, like as you, like somebody who grew up watching that sort of thing. Curious, Megan, you also, um, I've heard you talk about uh, your grandfather too. Yeah. I think a lot of the focus on, on just how you interact with humans and how you think about humans came from my grandfather. So I grew up, uh, my parents divorced when I was young and my mom and I moved in with my grandparents, never left. Um, and I grew up was very close to my grandfather. He lived to be 97. He just passed away in 2019. And from as long as I can remember, he was focused on helping people and helping people in the community. He had been a teacher, uh, and then he ran a vocational education program for our city. But before I ever came along, he ran a camp for special needs students in the 1960s when nobody, you know, everybody just kind of wanted to think about, oh, go put them somewhere. Yeah. And he worked with a lot of kids who came from, he worked in inner city schools. He worked with a lot of kids who came from tough backgrounds, but he always treated everyone with respect until and unless you did something to lose that respect. But as a general principle, Mm -hmm. Uh, people were people and they mattered whether they were uh, a congressman. Our congressman sent a note when he found out that my grandfather had passed because they had been old friends uh, or, you know, literally the custodian at my high school. Um, both of those people uh, were people my grandfather considered close friends. Wow. Yeah. So you're this kid. I'm starting to get this picture that you're this kid that grows up in this home where you've got people that are, you know, sensitive and uh, compassionate and empathetic toward people that are a little bit marginalized, a little bit outside the margins. Um, and you've got folks that are involved in customer experience. And then you go and uh, start working in corporate America. Like what, what's that like? I imagine, I mean, did you find these sort of warm, empathetic, uh, human-centered experiences in corporate America? Is that what you, is that was your, was that your experience? Yes and no. 
Uh, it was definitely a tough lesson. So I was one of the only kids coming out of uh, graduate school in the late 90s who went to work for a big company, right? I went to work for AT&T, what had used to have been Bell Labs. Uh, and I certainly had a big, steep learning curve around sort of the bureau, uh, bureaucracy of that. Mm-hmm. And I worked with a guy who had started at AT&T when my mother was nine. Wow. So uh, just yeah. the, you know, the we've always done it here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so it was definitely a check on myself that I wasn't the only thing, only one that knew anything just because I came out of school. Um, but it was also an opportunity to push people and, and help people see a different way to do things. And the vast majority of the people I've worked with throughout my career, um, were wonderful, wonderful people. This is actually part of when I work with big corporations, this is a big sort of part of my platform is that corporations are full of thoughtful, caring, well-meaning individuals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that when we come together, something happens. Mm. Either, um, you know, the the scale of the business, scale creates problems that Mm -hmm. empathy by itself can't solve, Mm -hmm. right? Care more is not the problem. If you literally don't know that a piece of this organization exists and is doing something, you can care all you want, but unless you know that they are there, um, you know, you don't know that there is something to care about. Um, Yeah. So there's, it's, it's easy to get cynical and I have certainly seen more than my fair share of um, Dilbert managers and people who really (laughs) truly are just all about the money. Um, Yeah. But I think on the whole, most individuals um, are good people. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've, I mean, we've experienced that too, right? Like a lot of times we come into organizations and we're brought in and we just, you know, the first time we sit around the table with a new client, like we just, we find like that there are people that care deeply, right? Like, and often they feel like their hands are kind of tied. You know, they, they really want to make change. They really want to start paying attention to the human dynamics in whatever experience it is that they're, you know, creating or selling. Um, and uh, yeah, they often just feel like their hands are tied. What do you think is like the biggest obstacle for companies or maybe, you know, the, the biggest obstacles that people face in those types of environments that are trying to shift and make that turn to focusing on sort of the human element? That's a great question. If I had to pick one to start with, uh, I would say that it's distance. In some ways, physical distance, in some ways, social distance. The, you know, we have empathy naturally. It's a built-in function of humans, kids as young as 18 months old, when they hear another child cry, instead of starting to cry themselves, uh-huh. they will reach out to comfort with no training in having done that. Yeah. Um, the, the more close in physical proximity we are, and the more similar we perceive ourselves to be to people, the stronger those feelings of empathy are going to be. So as we move into bigger and bigger companies where people are either geographically separated or, you know, you're serving a customer population that is not at all like you in some way, it becomes very hard for you to tap into those empathy circuits because it's not the environment they were optimized for. 
how do you help like leaders overcome those challenges? Like the challenges of proximity, the challenges of, you know, maybe not being able to sort of naturally relate to the people that they serve. Yeah. The first thing I do is I try to take away the stigma. I learned early on that coming in and saying to a group, whether I think it's objectively true or not, you know, you just don't know or care about your customers, not an effective technique for change. (laughs) Sure. Um, So coming in and saying, look, this is hard, right? Humans are naturally biased to assume everybody Mm -hmm. thinks like we do. So, you know, you can be the most well-meaning person in the world, but empathy is a skill that you have to practice. And it's something that you have to intentionally build in when we don't have kind of the structural, the same structural setting that we had uh, when our brains first developed. Mm -hmm. And um, there's some uh, brain researchers who say that our modern skulls housed a stone age mind. Yeah. Um, So the first thing I do is I try to take away the stigma. The second thing I do is I try to help them find some small little habits. I'm a big fan. I always tell people that um, customer experience is for a business. What wanting to eat healthy and exercise is for a person. Hmm. Of course, we know it's important. Of course, we want to do it. We might have grand plans and start, but the most effective way to change is to find lots of small little sustainable things. So something like, um, reading a couple of customer emails every day, watching some videos, um, talking to people in the organization that you don't normally talk to. Actually, when I was at AT AT&T, one of my first division managers had a program called Six for Lunch. His admin would randomly pick six people from all parts of the organization, all levels who didn't know each other and send us out to lunch. Mm. Wow. And we had to plan it. We had to pick the place. Um, And it it was really powerful because it gave me access to people that were far more senior than I ever would have had access to. And suddenly that group on the org chart is not a group on the org chart. It's a person with a name. (laughs) And that has uh, collaboration implications because if someone said, hey, we should tell marketing about this and I don't know anyone in marketing, I might blow it off. Mm-hmm. If I know, mm-hmm. you know, Joanne in marketing, I might say, well, hey, I don't know who in marketing this should be, but I feel comfortable enough to pick up the phone and call Joanne and she might be able to help mm-hmm. me figure it out. Yeah. Megan, Some little I'm, things I'm, like that. I'm curious, as I hear you talk about um, like distance being one of those barriers, right? And, and obviously you're highlighting examples of distance inside an organization as well as like outside the organization in terms of connection to customers. It just strikes me that like the the drive towards efficiency and things like that is so is so behind like the increased digitization and and things like that. How do you navigate kind of the way that might be in tension with the like desire to minimize distance or the need to minimize distance? Well, if I put on my engineer hat because I am an engineer by training. Um, I can make a a pretty concrete business case. Mm -hmm. So we think email is a more efficient way to communicate with people, including customers, but email is notoriously rife with miscommunications and misunderstandings. I've noticed. So the amount of, (laughs) yeah, there's research that shows it. The total amount of time that we spend solving a problem or answering a question over email is longer than if we had just picked up the Mm -hmm. phone. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And from a customer perspective, you know, everyone is talking about we want to build a relationship with our customers. We want to build an emotional relationship. Well, part of the reason you don't have that is because the dominant driver for the last 15 to 20 years is how can we send these people away as quickly as possible? Mm. Totally, yep. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what you save in operations cost on one side, you make up for in marketing costs on the other side by trying to get these people to care when you've shown them consciously or unconsciously that you don't. That's that's so interesting. Just thinking about the unintended consequences, right? Of it's just such a common human problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. humans are adaptable. So there is a generation of people, I'm included, I'm Gen X, and I tend to be a pretty late adopter technology-wise, but there are people who would much prefer to do it yourself, do it on the app, do it in the IVR, not talk to a human being. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that for certain kinds of things. We were recently working with a group who had um, relied on sort of cold calling um, for you know, trying to get people engaged in programs for chronic care medical conditions, right? And they just realized that the numbers were just drying up, right? Like nobody answers their phone anymore. Nobody picks up anything, even those of us in Gen X. It's not just millennials, the Gen Xers, we don't we don't pick up our phones either, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so a lot of that work was helping to identify like, okay, if that channel doesn't work anymore, right? What what, what sort of channels do, like what sort of events or mindsets or other channels open up all kinds of opportunity for that? So, well, Megan, I'm, I'm interested too. I know you've done a lot of work um, in the area of sort of the emotional aspect of experiences, paying attention to the emotions in experiences and helping people do that, helping leaders do that. Um, and I know you've done a lot of, you've had a lot of focus around sort of anxiety. And I'm curious, like, where did that start, sort of that interest in tending to anxiety in the system? Well, back up one step and talk about where the interest in tending to emotion came from and then zero in on anxiety. Sure. I always kind of instinctively believed that emotional experience mattered. Um, There's plenty of data from the psychology literature, but when I started going out and talking to business leaders, especially at senior executives and certain cultures of companies, uh, numbers driven, I discovered that they are emotionally attached to the idea that emotions don't matter. And it doesn't matter how much data I show them, they have an emotional commitment to the idea that that doesn't matter. So when I ran the customer experience index and we uh, completely revamped the methodology in 2014, one of the things we did was we made emotion an explicit component of what makes for a good customer experience. And that gave us the data to show that how you score, how a customer scores the experience on emotion, how it made them feel was the biggest driver of loyalty, stronger than whether it was easy and how even how effective it was. Um, it's incredible. <laughs> across all but one of the industries that we studied and across the US and Europe. Yeah, that's super striking. That We're actually in the middle of a research project right now with customer journey mapping. And we went in with all of these hypotheses about expertise mattering. And like, we just keep hearing stories about like how how they made me feel, how the relationship makes mm-hmm. me feel. It's just, it's really striking. 
Yeah. yeah. Megan, when the, you say there, th- those leaders were like emotionally committed to the fact that emotions didn't matter. Like, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Like, how did, how did that express itself? Because that, that's such a great phrase. So the the classic reason that sort of our logic loving society says, you know, poo poo to emotions is because we like to think we're logical and we're fact based. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. look anywhere and you will see people doing things that defy logic. <laughs> and so people think when they're doing business cases around customer experience or anything else, that if they have a strong financial argument or an argument that's backed up with, with quantitative research, that that means people will, um, of course, say yes to it. And that doesn't happen. And that's because whoever you're talking to has sort of a gut feeling, either a a fear, a risk, uh, something where the data doesn't jive with their mental model of the world. And Mm. the human brain does amazing gymnastics, you guys know this, to (laughs) discount new information and Mm. rationalize things that make no rational sense. So somewhere they had this emotional attachment to the idea that logic is, um, is best. Everything should be logical, you know, homo economis. Um, yeah. And when you challenge that, it makes people nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan, so are there, like, in your experience, are there particular emotions that leaders should aim for as they sort of manage experiences? Anxiety, uh, concern, fear, you know, all the emotions that are around there. Those are really important ones to focus on uh, not creating, but accounting for because they change how a person experiences the world. You know, we've all had a situation where we're rushing to get something done and we blow right past someone we know without saying hello, or we miss something really important. You know, when we're anxious or just the psychologists call it emotional arousal, right? When we're nervous about something, our brain sort of goes into tunnel vision. And so I've seen a lot of organizations who are like, oh, but, you know, we said this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, but you said it four pages down in a place where the customer's not going to see it, but you made this other thing bright red. So guess what? You know, if somebody, uh, I worked with an investment firm once that talked about um, the anxiety people had after the Great Recession of dipping their toe back into investing. Hmm. And that had a huge impact on how they designed their homepage. It was like minimalist Mm. because the more things you give people to process when they're nervous, the more likely they are to to either not see of them or get even more overwhelmed and say, oh, no, this is too big a deal. I can't, I can't Mm. deal with this right now. Yeah, Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. I'm, I'm curious, Megan, like what? What kind of guidance would you would you say? Are there like some thoughts around this is how to identify anxiety that exists in the system that you that you work in um, to identify? And then like here are some ways that you would give guidance to help sort of alleviate or reduce it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sort of macro data available about the state of stress and anxiety in the world. Um, the American Psychological Association does an annual stress in America report that they put out every year. 
where they ask people about stress levels and things that are stressing them out. Um, so just sort of keeping track of that at a, at a macro level. A second one is doing research, and I've had a number of clients do this, where they do qualitative research interviews and things like that, where they don't ask about the company or they don't ask about a particular task. They say, how do you feel when I say the word travel? How do you feel when I say investing? So understanding the emotional baggage that people have around whatever domain you're in. And then looking at the wrapper of the, is there anything about a particular situation or a particular journey that makes that, you know, people ask me what counts as a moment of truth. Uh, Ideally, it's a, a make or break moment, but very often things are make or break because they are inherently emotionally charged, right? Changing jobs, buying a home. Nobody actually, uh, today is actually the anniversary of the day I closed on my house. And someone said to me once, nobody actually wants a house. They want all the things that a house represents in their mind. (laughs) Security, stability, independence, all of those things, right? So buying a house, even though you're supposed to be happy and you are, uh, you know, it's a super stressful time. Um, Anything that's new, thinking about what would it be like if this were the first time I had ever done something like this? Uh, because new things make us nervous. And that's one of the reasons that um, COVID has brought out so much anxiety in people is nobody had ever seen anything like this. And the number one most anxiety producing thing among human beings is not knowing what's going to happen, which we never really know what's going to happen, but we like to tell ourselves we do. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, the I remember being in the grocery store, you know, the first um the first few trips to the grocery store and um being very aware of of how like anxiety was just driving like every behavior, you know, everything around me, like everyone, you know, trying to walk as far away from the other person in the aisle as possible and sort of the looks on everybody's faces. I mean, everybody just looked panicked, you know. And it did make me think, you know, there's so much anxiety in the system right now, so much anxiety in the atmosphere. Um, but I, I know that, um, that often, like, it's easy to perceive it right now, right? Because we're all experiencing it at the same time. But there's, there's often a lot of anxiety in systems that people aren't aware of, right? Like, they just, they miss it. They don't, because they're really not paying attention and they're, they're really not listening. You know, we we did some work with the children's hospital and we mapped the the emergency emergency department visit, right? We looked at that. And one of the things that was really frustrating for the the caregivers um, was that as soon as the mom or the dad that was there with the kid, as soon as they got the diagnosis, like, you know, they wanted to get out of the hospital. Like their next goal was to move on to the next thing. But for the caregivers, like they've got a lot of instructions and they've got a lot of prescription information. They've got a lot of, you know, stuff they've got to communicate. But one of their frustrations is that every time they would start to do that, like people would start to check out, you know, they'd start packing up their purse, they'd start gathering things up, you know, the iPad and all the stuff that they brought in. And it was so frustrating to the caregivers, but when they realized, oh, they're moving on because the main reason they came in was to get their anxiety relieved, right? And so once that disequilibrium of like having a sick kid and I don't know what's going on with them, once that was resolved, 
they were, they were done. Like they were, they came in and got what they were trying to get, right. Which is to get their anxiety relieved. And so they didn't really want to interact anymore. You know, so once the caregivers understood that, that at that moment, like what was going on, they stopped perceiving it as like, they don't value what I do. They're not valuing my expertise. That was kind of the story that they were telling themselves. Right. And they started to see, Oh no, they're just, incredibly relieved and just understanding how that anxiety was working there in that system was really, really powerful for designing. Well, yeah, they could be overwhelmed too. There's another book called Practical Wisdom uh, by um, Barry Schwartz and Ken Sharp. Barry Schwartz is uh, the guy who wrote Paradox of Choice. Um, And this is probably my favorite book from a customer experience perspective that no one's ever heard of. Um, because it talks about the fact that um, you can't make a rule for everything. And practical wisdom is the ability to, in that situation, size up what's going on and find the right balance between two good but conflicting uh, ideals, right? So a physician has to be honest and kind. A physician has to be thorough and sensitive. And there is, you can't write a rule for that, right? People Mm. have to learn to read situations. And that concept of practical wisdom is, I think, a skill that, um, especially in in less professional jobs, we don't want to give people the latitude to build. And it ends up being this problem where we, people don't have the skill to find the right balance or to recognize something like that because they've never been given the opportunity to learn. Yeah. Well, Megan, it's, it's been really good uh, to have this conversation with you. Thank you uh, for sharing your stories and your, and your wisdom with us. And uh, you know, as we, as we wrap up, I'm, I'm curious, like if we've got listeners who, who are thinking, you know what, I want to turn and I want to start paying a little bit more attention to the emotions or even particularly sort of the anxiety that may exist in, in the experience that I tend to, um, but particularly around the anxiety, how would you give us some guidance about where to get started? Well, I think just noticing, uh, one of the things that we, we have a tendency to do is, um, we go with whatever the default story is that our brain tells us. So I always tell people, what if we assume positive intent in this situation? So every time you have an interaction with somebody who's like, oh, that person's rude. Well, what if they're not rude? What other story could there be? And very often that comes back to um, an anxiety level. I think being open about your own anxiety, we all have it. I remember the first time I had an anxiety attack, it was the summer between undergrad and grad school. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was 21, went to the emergency room. And after that, 742 people said, oh, I have anxiety attacks all the time. No one had ever mentioned it before. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, we're getting more and more, you know, you've got celebrities like Carson Daly and other people who were talking very openly about anxiety disorders in addition to just, you know, living with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, So to the extent that more people are comfortable uh, talking about the fact that they are anxious and how they manage that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the more other people will be willing to say it and we'll all have better visibility. I mean, COVID has, that's one of the silver linings of COVID has been that we've gotten real fast. Yeah. 
It's true. And, you know, and everybody's so much more accepting, frankly, in a way that we should have always been. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, whatever it took. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Megan. Uh, and thanks yeah. for opening up to us and yeah. uh, sharing from your wisdom. It's been really great to be with you today. Yeah. My pleasure. It's great to meet with you. And thanks you guys for, for putting this podcast together. I think the topic is so important and I appreciate what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. Thanks, Megan. Thanks. Today's episode was hosted by me, David Whited, Mike Nowak, and Carissa Shelton. Editing by Daniel Santrella. Original music by Daniel Santrella and Tyler Edders. Cover art by Teresa Berg and Bridget Calling. Katie Sue Fisher does our scheduling administration. And Andreana Pacella is our beloved producer. For more information on Highland, visit our website at highlandsolutions.com or connect with us on Twitter at, at Highland Chicago.